Well, good morning, everybody. First time guests, especially for you. Welcome. My name's Samuel. Or Samuel. Wow. <laughs> Holy cow. His anointing's so strong, it's just rubbing off on me. I feel like I'm him. My name's Darren. <laughs> That's, and my name is Samuel. Yeah. And uh, we're, we're leaders here at the harbor. And the beauty of, of our leadership structure is it's a, it's a pluralistic leadership um, where we give value, honor, preference, service to one another to bring forth the gifts and grace, graces of God in each of our lives. And, and that's not only reflected in our leadership, but in you as well as a people. And so this morning we're doing something a little unique. Uh, we're continuing an ongoing conversation as it relates to the realities of things that we're facing in our country, specifically concerning uh, the gospel and race relations. And so we're going to be having a dialogue today, a conversation um, together, Sam and I, along with you. Um, the questions, actually, that we're going to be uh, conversing about were submitted by this community, by this body. So we're simply going to be covering those that you all wanted to have discussed and talked about. Other thoughts on this, Sam? Well, I just want to thank everyone that submitted questions. We had over a dozen questions, and we narrowed them down to seven. And these seven questions really encompass all the total questions. So thank you for everyone that submitted questions, and we're really excited about really having this conversation. So before we jump in, let's just pray, and, and then we'll start our time. Uh, Father, thank you for this moment that we have together as a family to discuss a topic that can be so divisive, that can be so toxic, but yet we acknowledge your peaceful presence here with us today. Um, so as we dialogue, Lord, we dialogue in your presence and with you. So would you lead us in Jesus' name? Amen. So one of the first questions that was submitted to us is this. It says, does racism really exist today? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and what I want to say is, is this, just to preface our conversation, um, personally, uh, I want to be a, a listener, a learner, uh, someone who's empathetic to, to, to the reality of what is going on today in, 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 our, in our nation. And, and this question is, is, I think, super pertinent. I want to look at the definition of racism and then just the fruit of it, because I think we need to nuance uh, this a little bit just to make it practical and relevant for us. But look at the definition here. Racism says, or defin by definition, is a belief that race is the, and I want to highlight this, primary determinant of human traits, and this word right here is very important, and capacities, and that racial differences produce an inherent superiority of a particular race. Now, one of the things that I know, if something's at the root, whether it's in culture or society or our hearts or whatever, there's ultimately going to be a measure of fruit there that's going to come forth. And I want to look at the fruit of racism just as we dive in here. One of the fruit of racism is prejudice. Let's just look at the definition of this for just a minute, all right? Prejudice is a preconceived judgment or adverse opinion or leaning formed without just grounds or before sufficient knowledge. So is that happening today? Which leads to discrimination. I want to read this definition. Discriminate means to make a difference in treatment 
or favor on a bias other than individual merit. I believe this is a reality in our culture. I believe, obviously, things have changed. We've, we've grown, but there's a reality in our culture as it relates to the, to the issue of racism. Yeah, I, I think if we're honest, we know that racism has a very long history in human civilization as a whole. But when we talk about racism within the context of, of the United States, um, it does have a history, and it is really this, uh, this false ideology and belief that, as we saw in the definition, that one race is far superior than the other race. What's, what's really weird about that is, is that judgment is made just based off of surface features. It's based off of the, the color of someone's skin. Here's an example. Last week, last week, my wife went to a nail salon that she goes to very often. And when she walked in, the manager of the nail salon saw her, and he knows her, so he told her to go and see um, a nail technician that was available. So when she walked in, there were some white people that were sitting there waiting. So as he motioned for my wife to go and see the next technician, there began to be some kind of murmuring. And the manager said to the people who were waiting, well, you know, she comes here often, and what she's getting, that no technician can actually do. But what you're getting requires another technician, so, so you're going to have to wait. So when my wife got to the nail technician, the technician asked her, um, what did the manager say to you? And then my wife said, well, he just told me to come and see you. Is everything okay? And the technician said this. She said, well, yes, um, they told us that we shouldn't take any colored people before white people. This is last week in our community. So when we say, does racism really exist, the answer is yes. Because to say that racism does not exist is to look at a building and say it has no foundation. Because you don't see the foundation doesn't mean the building does not exist. In fact, because there is a building, it means there is a foundation. And unfortunately, the... The sin of racism and, and the foundation that was built in our country that lends itself to systemic realities is still, unfortunately, pervasive in our country. You know, Paul in Galatians, I want to show you this because we want to we want to dialogue about race reality and the gospel just to bring a gospel piece in here. And Galatians chapter three, verse 28. Look what look what Paul says, this apostolic leader who's given birth to the New Testament church. He said, in Christ's family, this is from the message version, there can be no, I want to highlight that, division into Jew and non-Jew, slave and free, male and female. Among us, you are all equal. That is, we are all in common relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, one of the, the definitions of racism is that there's primary determinant of human traits and capacities, as I, as I mentioned, and in Christ, we are all equal in terms of being under this omnipotent one, which literally that word means the one filled with all 
potential. In other words, all of us are equal in who we are and what we represent and the potential that we can actually bring to the earth, i.e. our capacity. No one is diminished by that. So we're looking for God to really break in among our community to manifest the gospel in this, this reality. And we've had some conversations before about this. And one thing that I mentioned to Darren was, um, I know we have some Caribbean people here. And I don't know if any of you have cooked with curry before. But here's what you know about curry. Once it gets on your clothes, it never comes out. You can wash it. You can bleach it. It's on your shirt. And sometimes even the scent remains. That's how racism is in this country. It is a stain, and you can't just wash the shirt. You need a new one. So for us to progress as a nation, we can't wash the shirt. We can't add amendments. We can't add policies. We need a new social structure. Yeah, amen. And, and we're unified on that, Sam and I and our team, because we believe that we represent uh, a, a newness uh, that, that God wants to bring to the earth and it's called the kingdom of God. The second question that was submitted to us is, what is the root cause of racism? Does it tie back to original sin? Yeah, I think, you know, most of us would see that in the word of the Lord. Genesis 3.15, when there's the fall... We see this concept of, of enmity coming between man and woman. And that was, you know, in that relationship, different, different uh, uh, you know, not races, but genders. There was supposed to be union, but now there was enmity that was going to manifest there in the midst of the fall. Enmity meaning hatred, hostility, animosity, and antagonism. So we see the fruit of the fall, you know, manifesting in these realities, which is the opposite of love, between genders, between races. And, and this is something that we have to understand, just like sickness, disease. I mean, you know, all the, all the things that, that give, lend and give brokenness to society and culture, um, they are a root cause, you know, causation of that fall that took place back in the garden. And when we talk about original sin. I mean, we know this to be a theology that was made popular by Augustine. But the idea of original sin, just like Darren said, is to go back to the beginning. And in, in Romans chapter 5, you know, Paul makes a statement. He says that, that sin entered the world through one man and then death through sin. So the, the sin of racism is really making a judgment call of someone's value, their worth, and significance, simply based off the color of their skin. And what we've also seen historically is that the reason why racism has weight is the person who is racist, if they're in a position of authority and influence and power, then they can create a structure to further perpetuate that belief. And unfortunately, that's one of the dynamics between how our country was brought about. And we have different 
examples of that. You know, we have the Naturalization Act of 1790, which was in essence the first immigration law. And what was weird about that is after we declared independence and we were a new nation, we knew that given the, the dynamic of our country, people would want to come here. So this Naturalization Act basically said that any alien, free white person can become a citizen. But that excluded black people because they were considered to be property. So we couldn't even come into this nation to be citizens because we weren't seen to be persons. And that was a judgment call simply based off of the color of our skin. And then when you go back into the you know, early 18th century, 19th century, then you have scientific racism where there was scientific studies that backed that people who were of darker skin were base, they didn't have any kind of intellectual capacity, and they couldn't even be converted with the gospel. And, you know, this is the kind of seed that was planted in the beginning of this country. Now, again, racism has a long history far and above America, but within the context of this country. Um, we can say that um, sin is tra I mean, racism is traced to sin because sin is divisive by nature. Not only that, but see, sin, sin is really de deceptive because it has moral and social implications. And this is a deception of sin. When it comes to racism, the outworking of that in a sinful way is to enslave people. But the problem is you are the one who is enslaved. Because sin deceives us in that way. You know, I remember, you know, having now traveled over 22 nations. I remember going to India for the first time and, and learning of the caste system. And within that system, that was a political system at the end of it, religious and political. It's very interesting how the mixture was there. But within that system, they have what are called the low caste peoples. And they're actually in that system not even viewed as human. Not even viewed as him, human. So we can see within this reality um, of, of the root of racism, going back to the original reality of sin, is to devalue someone as an individual based on their particular race, culture, caste, whatever the case may be. And, and, and 1 John says this. It says, love has been perfected among us in this. So again, we're racism, hatred, opposite of that is love. So in, in, in love, it's been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Look at this. Because as he is, so are we in the world. So what Jesus looked like, the one who actually came and was sent to the world, sent to the broken, sent to the hurting, sent to the foreigner, sent to the alien, because, you know, a lot, of, a lot of times we can say, well, I'm not racist, and this doesn't have anything to do with me. Well, Jesus wasn't racist, yet he still went. He, he plunked himself right in the midst of it. All, all of the brokenness and became this expression of love, and I believe this is what we are called to be. You know, oftentimes I think, you know, and this has been the beautiful journey even of Sam and I's relationship, you know, to, to grow and come to understand one another. I mean, he was raised in the inner city. New York, New Jersey community. I was raised in, in the Pacific Northwest of Montana. I mean, you couldn't get two further, more distant cultures than that, right? 
But a lot of, re- a lot of times the reason that, that we have um, hatred and, f- and fear, or, or fear which, which 1 John 4.18 says, you know, that, that we're, to, we're to, to bring the opposite of that, is because we don't understand. We fear what we don't understand. We really fear what we don't understand. And, and I just want to say this and then turn it back over to Sam. Like, that's why I'm, I'm really believing God that we could begin to have conversation with one another primarily be listeners, ask good questions to, to learn and to understand where someone else is coming from. And I believe that that's going to be beginning, beginning to break fear because fear is, is something that's given birth to and things and people that we don't understand. You know, I think it was really key that you started with the definition of racism because I think for some people, uh, race equals outright hate. But... As we saw, it's a lot more nuanced than just hate because you can say, well, I don't hate anybody. I'm not, therefore, racist. I mean, because we don't see things like, you know, cross, crosses burning on lawns or, or, you know, people being lynched in the woods, um, that, doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean that racism has, has ended. But there's an implicit aspect of racism that we could be subconscious of sometimes. We can make judgment calls, you know. If I were to maybe come into this building wearing Timberland boots and saggy jeans, some may have an immediate judgment call of my character, who I am, and who they think I am. And that's just human nature. That's not just a black and white thing, you know. Like, allow me to say that. But we need to be aware of the social cues sometimes. And we need to be aware of how we present ourselves to the world because people will respond to that. Yeah. And I believe what he said here because if, if this is happening between Caucasian to a Caucasian, it, it, I mean, let's be honest. Like we, we judge other pastors, other ministries, other leaders, other people in our workplaces. It's only more amplified when it comes and, and, and has race added to that. Um, third question here, Sam. Uh, do you believe there's such a thing as white privilege in America? Now, I love this question because this is an ongoing conversation right now that's happening in our country. Um, so I'm, I'm excited about engaging this question. I think we need to be honest about there is an aspect of racism that is socially constructed because there really wasn't a fully developed sense of racism in the early 1700s, so to speak, in terms of where it is right now, um, leading into the segregation area, civil rights area. When it comes to what many consider to be white privilege, this is not to say that people who are white don't have work ethic, that everything is handed to them on a silver platter. What it does suggest is given the, the foundational structure of our country and the systemic realities, there are some things that are easier for white people to achieve and accomplish than a black person. And these examples extend into things like housing laws, for example. And what we know in the early 20th century that there were things like redlining, restrictive racial covenants, where people that were African-American, they couldn't buy certain homes. They were discriminated against in terms of 
loans and where they would live, the value of their homes would never appreciate. And we can look at examples like, for example, affirmative action. That was actually one of the questions. You know, an affirmative action isn't this idea that somehow blacks get a pass to go into higher education. But the reality was African Americans or black people were underrepresented in higher education, not because they weren't smart, but because there were structures that made it difficult or harder for them to achieve higher education as opposed to someone who was a non-black. So when it comes to this idea of, of white privilege, this is something that didn't just begin in the 21st century, but this is a result of these systemic realities century after century. You know, the thing that I saw on this is that white privilege, and, and I, I found this definition, is the quantitative, meaning something that can be measured with data, advantage of being white. And I, I just looked at a few things here, and, and one of the things that we're seeing in our nation that's very practical, and, and, and we're seeing, a, you know, a kind of an, a, a, a call for help in our nation has to do with... Um, being white and having a more more positive, not perfect, but a more positive relationship with the police. I never really thought about that much as a, as a, as a white person. And as I did the the research here, you know, blacks 18 to 25 um, are 21 more times likely to be shot by police than young white boys. You know, there's even testimony coming from from African American police officers saying. You know, some of these realities, blacks uh, being 13% of the U.S. population, yet are 31% of the fatal police shooting victims in our nation. And one of the things I saw on Facebook, and I, I want to I just ask Sam this question, you know, uh, an, a, a Caucasian man uh, put uh, a piece of data out there that said that actually there have been more whites shot in America um, than blacks. And I just want to ask you about that, because how, how would someone responding in that way and just even put some, put some, uh, put some context behind that, actually, even that, that, that piece of data, but how would that make you feel when you see something like that on, on it, Facebook? It would make me feel unheard, misunderstood, because not that that statistic isn't correct, but the fact that it comes on the heels of a person that is black saying, this is what's happening to me. It puts me on the defensive because it, it, it doesn't communicate that you're really listening or you're being empathetic to the outcry of what's happening with me. Uh, now, white people make up over 70% of the U.S. population. That's just a statistic by the U.S. Census last year, for example. And African-Americans, like Darren said, make up less than 13%. So, of course, there will be more white people shot by police than black people. But the fact that 25% of those shootings are against black people says that we outnumber white people almost three to one. In other words, we are more likely to be shot by a police officer, most times unarmed, than a white person. Yeah, New York City, for example, because we got to bring this into these, uh, you know, metropolitan contexts. 
44% of people living in New York City are white, 53 black and Latino. So the, the percentage is much more equal. But 80% of police stops were to black and Latino versus white. And 85% of those that were frisked were black and only 8% white. So you see the reality of this, you know, coming into our cities that I think it's important for us to, to pay attention to. And let me say this too. And this is where I think we have to understand um, where we've been as a country. When it comes to the relationship between law enforcement and African Americans, it's not a pretty history. Not at all. I mean, I always cringe when I see civil rights videos of police dogs being sicked. Sicked is a New Jersey word, you know. Um, but when they have the dog pretty much attack African Americans simply for a peaceful protest, that, that's hard for me to watch. But going back further, you know, even before the Civil War, Actually, one of the things that triggered the Civil War, and you can research this, it's like it's, it's out there, but there was a, a Fugitive Slave Act in 1790, which basically allowed citizens and law enforcement to go after blacks who they considered to be runaway slaves and to bring them back into bondage. Now, this is part of the beginning of law enforcement and black relations. Now, when it comes to police brutality, we've seen a lot of that in, in the last couple of years. And, and I just go, I won't go into saying the names, but most of them are young, unarmed black people. Now, some may say, okay, well, what about black on black crime? What do you have to say about that? Well, well here's the reality. In in any demographic area where you have a predominant ethnic culture, you're going to have high crime. So in a predominantly black culture, if there's crime, there will be black-on-black -black crime, which is high. But the number is as equally high white-on-white -white crime in a predominantly white area. So that really is a moot point there. But the reality is police brutality and, and sometimes... You know, the stop and frisk that was really big in the Northeast and, like, in some ways is still there is really just based off of the color of someone's skin or maybe how they look. But that's not in a vacuum. That's what I'm really trying to stress here. It's not in a vacuum. It's an extension of the relationship that black people have had in this country with law enforcement. Because thinking about it, like, you know, there were laws enacted that were against black people, not because we committed any crimes, but simply because of how we looked. And, and that continues to be an echo in the black psyche. I mean, I've seen, you know, white people get pulled over, and they can say things to police officers I would not dare say. I, I, I just wouldn't, because it may not turn out well for me, but that's just a statistical reality. So I, yeah. Breaks my heart, and, and I think that we see the strategy of the adversary in culture as it relates to authority. We see that in the breakdown of the home. We see that that culturally. We see that governmentally. And, and there's and there's just really a, an attempt to create uh, fear, suspicion, all those kind of things. And I think God really wants to do a work there, do something really beautiful. This next question 
says, why does the white church not reach out more to the black church? Yeah. Just a little philosophical thought on this, having to do somewhat related to this question, and we'll answer it. But we really believe that in uh, multicultural areas like South Florida, that the heart of God would be to not have a white church or a black church, but his church. So um, that's really our heart. And um, it's really uh, one of the things we're most excited about as we become more ethnically, culturally, racially diverse as, as the harbor. We believe it's, it's a picture of heaven. And, um, and so really the question is, why, do not, why don't white people engage black people? And, and I think, you know, this, this whole engagement aspect of our, our true north concept, you know, where we're not just here to worship and grow in our identity and intimacy with God and, and understand destiny, but we're to do this together with one another. And that takes engagement. That takes where we're going to, someone's going to rise up and become a mentor and say, hey, I'm going to step out of the social norm and I'm going to do something different and reach out and get into the life of someone that's different than me. And out of that, you know, I think we should really believe God for friendships that begin to be established across racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic diversity. I mean, the people, you know, it's easy to hang out with people that are like ourselves, but it, it really takes some work to, to, to actually begin to share life with, with people that are different and then really then go and give this away to other people and, and, and to begin to engage others. Yeah. Um, no, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, when we talk about this, like this question in terms of white church and black church, one thing I love about Church United, which is what's happening in Broward County, I remember being at a meeting and there was a church that was predominantly white that really, they were transparent. And then they realized, you know, as we try to claim the lostness and brokenness of our city, that there is a church that maybe two miles east of us that's predominantly black and we have no relationship with them whatsoever and here we are trying to own the brokenness of our city we're trying to get involved in the community and we don't have a context we don't have language we don't know what to do but here is a church that's actually in the community doing social things that we just need to participate in so what I love is that that church now, they started having joint staff meetings just to say, okay, we're a white church, you know, in terms of demographic. But teach us. We want to get involved. We want to own the lostness of our city. And you guys are building houses. You have social programs. And we want to be in this space. Can we work together in that? That's the beauty of when we you know, see the capital C church that is not defined by skin color or surface features, you know. And I think Darren is right. Sometimes it's just we want to stay where it's comfortable. We want to stay with people that we know. It can be threatening to engage someone else that may not look like us. I read this quote by Martin Luther King in his letter from Birmingham Jail. If you haven't read it, please read it. Um, please read it. But he says this. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, 
I have watched white churchmen stand on the sideline and mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities in the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic justice. I have heard many ministers say, those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. Now, I'm, I'm proud to be a part of a church that says the opposite. That we believe the gospel speaks directly to social concerns. And that's the message that we say loudly and proudly. So with that, moving into the fifth question, we just have a couple more here. Sam, what do you think we need to know about the heart, mind, and personality of God as a community that could free us into his vision of race instead of America's vision? That's a good question. Here's, here's how I would put this. The, the American vision of race is to put people in categories based on their skin color. But God's vision of race is to put people in community regardless of skin color. That's what God does. And God, speaking of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, they interact in a free-flowing dance. That's what Richard Ward would say. Like it's a free-flowing dance. And although... They are distinct from one another. The Father's not the Son, the Son's not the Father, and so on. Although they are distinct from one another, they operate without distinction. They may be different, but they work together with complete love and complete peace. Now, that's the nature of God. Now, if we're made in the image of God, then that means that we are to operate in that same kind of dynamic with other people. Beautiful. So, Sam... What can we do, our church, what can we do to give more voice to the black experience in America? And when I say this was a direct question, but let's go ahead and put it for every ethnicity that's, that's a minority, i.e. Hispanic, Latino, Asian, Native American, whatever. What can we do to give more voice to the experience of these minorities in our nation? Well, I'll tell you what. The fact that we're having this conversation is an example of, of what we can do. I mean, this is usually a very hot topic. Most churches won't even engage this space. But because we love each other and because we want to see a mutually beneficial society, we want to go into these spaces that most people would never go to. So being able to have this conversation where, where I can speak and verbalize and share what my experience is, is, is a huge step in the right direction. I read this quote by a, a Canadian Aboriginal leader, George Erasmus, and he says this, where common memory is lacking, where people do not share in the same past, there can be no real community. Where a community is to be formed, common memory must be created. In other words, let's be on the same page about the reality of where we've been as a nation. And let's work together to give each other spaces in our own lives. And 
because we are a multi-ethnic church, we want to give expression to that in terms of our leadership team, in terms of, you know, like our worship team, our style of music, what we do. We're going to go into those spaces because that's just what you do. Amen. So as we pass out communion, we're going to um, look at the last question here and then, and, and then take that and, and, and pull that into this time where we come around a table together. Um, and the question is, so it's how do we as a church contribute to the direction of culture and social structure from a kingdom perspective, assuming we are all in agreement with the governance of love and the great lover himself? Now, you know a Harvard person wrote that question. <laughs> you know a Harvard person wrote that question, but yeah. It's Beautiful. I think, I think we were beginning to grasp the, the spiritual principle that we can't give away something that we haven't already received for ourselves, right? So if we're going to um, come into the agreement and governance of love with the great lover himself, we have to have first received that love, which transcends and... and supersedes all other things in order to give it away. Would you agree? And this is where it's truly going to be transformed people who transform culture. Like, that's not just the cliche saying. That's like a sober fear of the Lord, like passionate desire that we have. We're not just up here playing games. We're like, Lord, we really want to see our city changed and our nation. We don't want to just, for the sake of shock value, talk about difficult issues. No, we want to see the government of heaven invade the governments of the earth. And, and we see in Revelation 22.1, we see the angel of the Lord showing this river of the water of life. It's, so it's like liquid love. That's flowing, right? And it says that it's clear as crystal. Meaning, there's nothing filtered into it. There's no hatred. There's no animosity. There's no hostility. There's no antagonism. And it's flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. Now, we think, oh, well, that's reserved for some future reality. Actually, it's not. You can actually, the majority of the, the interpretation of Revelation, you can find in John. Look at John 3.16 when it says, for God so loved the world. What did he do? He brought that river out from that other space and he brought it right on into the earth through Jesus. So love looks like giving. And it looks not only like that, but it will only have power and potency when we've received it for ourselves. So then what we give away, we have authority. You guys can pass that as we go. As we go. Just, just stay engaged here. One little thought here as we take communion together. Jesus was all about racial reconciliation. Whether we think that or believe that or not. And I can prove it to you. In John chapter 4, do you remember when he's traveling back to Jerusalem to go to the temple? And he said this. He said, I have to go to where? 
Samaria. Now you need to go and do research for yourself and see the reality of what was happening between the Jews, the spiritual people, and the Samaritans. And it was straight up hatred, hostility, misunderstanding. And so Jesus shows up to this Samaritan woman, by the way, they were half-breeds. They were part Jew, part Gentile, and they were disdained, really. Remember he says, as he shows up this well, he's weary, and he asks her for a drink of water. Do you remember? She's astonished. First of all, that he's even talking to her. And then he says this in verse 10. He says, if you knew, chapter 4, verse 10, the generosity of God and who I am, you would have been asking me for a drink, and I would have given you fresh and living water. You know what he was saying to her and what he's saying to us today? We think we have all these things that we're called to do for God, but the reality is we can't do it out of our own effort, going down to some well and doing our best to try to make a difference. We need to receive that river that was flowing in heaven that came down to earth through Jesus and that love come and encounter our soul where anything and everything that's tainting that water on the inside of our hearts, it just needs to go. And there's no way that can happen outside of God doing something special and profound and supernatural on the inside of us. But when it does, remember at the feast, Jesus says, anyone who believes in me, John 7, 38, may come and drink and the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from your heart. What? So the river flowing from the throne of God is now flowing through people on the earth? Exactly. And it's a river we see in Revelation that brings healing for what? The nations. Do you know what that word means? It's the word ethnos, meaning every single ethnocentric people group on the planet. It even goes beyond race. Because, come on, you've been to other nations. Within whatever nation, there might be 15 ethnocentric people groups, different cultures, even among different people. So you know what? Brokenness has come to the earth. I was looking at this. This is crazy. Did you know during colonialism from the 15th to 19th century, it's estimated that between, they don't even know, between 60 and 150 million people taken from Africa, the African continent lost their lives just in transition across the Atlantic. Middle passage. Native American population, did you know when the Americas dropped from 12 million in 1500 A.D. to only 237,000 in 1900? Sociologists called it a sustained genocide through disease and atrocity. 
We know over six million Jews lost their lives in the Holocaust. You're talking about the enemy inflicting pain upon people groups that need a river. And they don't need one tainted with one iota of anything but love. That's what's going to bring healing. And you know who's the answer? We are. Because Jesus was the answer and He lives on the inside of us. So, Sam, I want to say something here. The, the, the good news about what Darren just shared is that there was a time in, in, in this country where we couldn't drink from the same water fountain or we couldn't eat at the same table. But because of what God has done, we drink from the same river and we dine at the same table. <laughs> That's good news for me. That the good news of Jesus goes out to everyone irrespective of skin color, ethnicity, or culture. It's for all of us. And I've been at Darren's house. He's been to mine. That probably is unheard of in certain parts of our country. But we believe the good news. And we're going to live it out in Jesus' name. Because we're putting our money where our mouth is. We've done vacations together. We've traveled together. We're friends. I love Sam. I think he loves me. I'm not sure. (laughs) But we're at a table today. And there's no mountain that he wouldn't climb up. No wall that he wouldn't break down. No shadow that he wouldn't light up to come after us. He's, He's going... Anywhere and anywhere that love is being hindered. He'll leave the 99 and he'll go to the minority. Can I throw this out? I think we're going to be astonished to see what God's going to do through the minorities in our nation in the days to come. Continents like Africa that have been so oppressed. The reason the enemy does that is he knows the beauty and the brilliance in those people. Just wait. God will get his recompense. It's coming. And it's coming through love. Through Father, a body that was broken. And blood that was spilled. That made a way where there seemed to be no way. Thank you, Daddy, for bringing the heaven, the reality of heaven and the beauty of life to the earth through your son. May as we take today, may we be in remembrance that we carry this same river of living water to heal, to restore, to make whole. Just as we take, Maddie, could you just sing over us? Could we just maybe, um, if you, if you're able, maybe you turn to someone next to you. Could you just, maybe you don't know them, but could you just pray together and uh, take together? You know, scoot the aisles in. Um, let's just take a minute and let's just share together around this beautiful table.